एच आर और ह्यूमन रिसोर्स इज़ वन ऑफ द मोस्ट डिबेटेड डिपार्टमेंट्स फॉर द सिंपल रीजन दैट दे आर पीपल हु ऑन द वन साइड फील एच आर इज़ द मोस्ट यूजलेस और अ फ्री राइडर डिपार्टमेंट हु आर इन एन ऑर्गेनाइजेशन टू फाइंड मोमेंट्स ऑफ एंटरटेनमेंट फॉर द एम्प्लॉयज एंड सेलिब्रेट यू नो वन ऑफ द अदर ओकेजन्स और फेस्टिवल्स और दे आर अ ग्रीवेंस रिड्रेसल कमिटी वाइल ऑन द अदर हैंड देर आर पीपल हु अंडरस्टैंड द इम्पॉर्टेंस ऑफ द फंक्शन इट्स वैल्यू इन द कंपनी स्ट्रैटी and as a function which drives the entire organization like an undercurrent interestingly it doesn't matter if you're in hr yourself or not you could still be on either side i feel the reason why hr is often discounted so much is because the outcomes of their efforts cannot be objectively measured to showcase the results and the impact can only be observed over a long period of time which many people and leaders lack the sight for or that period could be in itself more than the average tenure of the employees or leaders themselves however there are organizations who have transformed themselves through an effective strategy in hr and the world at large is slowly beginning to acknowledge and leverage this to build organizations from ground up or turn their organizations whenever needed our guest for today wayne brockbank professor at the university of michigan's ross school of business has co-authored the book victory through organization to help both the hr professionals and business leaders to leverage opportunities in hr which can build great organizations the book is obviously not written out of thin air 30 years of individual experience of all the four authors has gone into it and they've also shared detailed data points to back their theories Namaste I'm Shubham Agarwal and you're listening to SOS Secrets of Storytellers a podcast where I interview authors and writers from the world of business to give us lessons on leadership and HR don't miss out the last section where we get to know secrets from the storyteller themselves Hi Wayne uh, welcome to Secrets of Storytellers how are you Perfect this morning thanks for having me It's great to have you Wayne thank you Uh, so when let's start with the very basic questions uh, uh, which are based around your book victory through organization what is hr you know and and what is the single most important duty of an hr in an organization that's a that's a great great question we um there's let me add one other reason why hr tends to be undervalued it's it's fascinating people really really care about hr practices they care they care a lot about how much money they make they care about their measurement systems they care about the colleagues they work with that's called recruitment they care about who their leaders are that's called promotion people really care about hr stuff the problem is the gap between sometimes and we'll talk more about this through the through this discussion uh the gap between the how important the hr practices are and how they sometimes perceive the hr department and professionals that make those practices happen so uh, so it's not that hr is unimportant it's so important that people really want it to get right i think that's <laughs> that's one of the great ironies so what is hr's primary purpose uh let me divide that in two pieces so i'm going to kind of give two in 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 today's pandemic that's different from what the purpose of hr will be after the pandemic's over during the pandemic the primary role of hr is to keep people healthy and to provide them the tools to be able to continue the work of the company 
by giving them the tools to conduct their business from from their homes through virtual reality. Right. So there's been a huge learning curve for a lot of people as they've learned what buttons to press to get to get MS Teams to work. What buttons they need to press next uh, next hour to get to get Zoom to work. But they have to they had to focus on keeping people healthy and then to enable them to work in the new environment. Now, and that's really important, but there's no competitive advantage in that unless you don't, if you don't do those things, then you could create competitive disadvantage. But most companies are trying to keep their people healthy and are providing the tools for virtual work at home. So that's one, pur one purpose during the pandemic. After the pandemic is over, uh, we hope that happens sooner than later. My prayers are with my colleagues and friends in India through this terrible time. Um, but once the pandemic's over, then what is the purpose of HR? The purpose of HR is to create an organization where people think and behave together, where people together think and behave in ways that, that help them to, to provide products and services that are better than the competition. It's, it's not that difficult. And HR needs to have a, a unilateral and disciplined focus on creating that organization that wins in the marketplace. If they don't, then then what they do is irrelevant. And so it that ha they has to have that disciplined focus to create the human organization, the organization that is capable of beating the competition. Period. Right. Interesting. Uh, I don't think a lot of people look at HR like that. But then, where do HRs fail, Wayne? Or rather, why do business leaders or organizations fail to realize their importance? Well, <laughs> in my experience, the reason leaders uh, underestimate the importance of HR is a lot of HR professionals underestimate the importance of HR. <laughs> right. And, and, and they don't. They think they're in the business of administering benefits. They think they're in the business of basic recruitment. They think they're in the business of doing basic training. No. The, the purpose of HR is to create the organization that is capable of beating the competition. And, and that's the mindset that HR professionals should have. We'll talk more about uh, that here later in this discussion about where, we, where HR professionals sometimes fall short. And it's that gap between what HR can be and kind of what it is and to identify those key areas of gap that I've dedicated my whole life to. Now, let me give one example. HR says that it's in the people business, right? Yeah, I mean, you've heard do. that over and over again, it's in the people business. Well, there's two things that are desperately wrong with that sentence. One is they're not, HR is not in the people business, they're in the business business. That is, their job is to work with the other departments to make their contributions so that they can work together as a total organization to beat the competition. And so they need to, first of all, understand that they're not in the people business, they're in the business business. And when they conceptualize themselves as, as not being part of the business, and guess what? They don't get to be part of the business and leaders dismiss them. That's number one. Number two is they, they claim they're in the people business, but let me hold up the mirror of reality to what happens in that sentence. We are in the people business. In business, there are two groups of people that are really important. There's not one, there's two. 
when HR people talk about being in the people business, they talk about the people, the internal people, that is employees and leaders, the people who work inside the company. But that's only half of the people proposition for business. The other half of the people that are really, really important is customers that decide whether to buy your products and services or not, right? So there's two groups of people. There's people on the inside and people on the outside. But when HR says that we're in the people business, they're only talking about the first half. That means they're 50% right. And 50% at least at the University of Michigan is failing. <laughs> and so they fail. Nice. Yeah. Because the pr ultimate purpose of HR is to bring the people on the inside together with the people on the outside and to make sure that the people on the inside are continually and, and, and sustainably focused on meeting the requirements the, 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 that the customers have so that they buy your products and services instead of the competition. And when they, and, and again, the problem is that when HR folks say they're in the people business, they only focus on half the people and 50% is failing. They have to be able to focus on bringing both pieces together and that's 100%. That's, that's a very interesting dimension that I've probably come across for the first time and makes a lot of sense to me. So let's get straight to the learnings from the book. And uh, you, know, you have shared and mentioned in the book that there are three core competencies that an HR should have uh, to bring these two groups of people, like you mentioned, together. These are strategic positioner, credible activist, and paradox navigator, which are further broken down into three more traits each uh, within each of these. Now, what is that one thing which should be the HR's focus or probably a single law that should guide all of HR's actions, their suggestions? their decisions, you know? I think that's, that's a, a, a very important question and I appreciate you, the way you framed it. So we have the, we have, we've identified among others, three dominant uh, competency categories, strategic position, credible activist and paradox navigator. Let's start with strategic positioner. The, strate the role of the strategic positioner for HR folks is to understand what's going on in the marketplace and to make sure then that the organization is continually aligned with the requirements of the marketplace. And, and that is what we call the strategic positioner. If HR doesn't do that, then nothing else we do matters. But the paradox navigator comes into play where at the same time as we've talked about, they have to maintain the health and well-being of their employees while they're continually positioning the firm to be consistent with the requirements of the marketplace. So there's that paradox that has to continually be navigated uh, as HR professionals do their work. Now, one thing you have to keep in mind though is something I learned as a, as a young doctoral student that's many, many years ago. We had a, an economics professor who uh, was very, very tough. He was really a, a very, very difficult person to work with. I think with. economic professors are generally like that. <laughs> <laughs> you said that, I didn't. So I, I, I'll, be just, I'll be a disclaimer on that sentence. Oh, no, um, yeah. His name was Armin Alshin. He was brilliant. He was, he, was, he, was, he was nominated for a Nobel Prize. He didn't win it because, because of, of different issues. But 
but he was he was brilliant. Remember one day he said, the problem with you people in the business school, now he's in the economics department, says the problem with you people in the business school, if virtually across all functions, finance, accounting, operations, HR, across uh, real estate, uh, logistics, across all functions, there's one thing in the business school that you, that, that you uh, misinterpret and don't understand correctly. In those, in those departments in the business school, they teach you to, as a doctoral student to fall in love with your internal processes, structure, practices, all the stuff that's going on, on the inside in accounting and finance and operation, blah, 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 in HR especially. He said, and, and by the time you, you, you're, you're done with your, business school, with your business school training, you've forgotten what business is all about. <laughs> And that is that nothing, and this is his punchline, nothing you do on the inside matters, means anything to anybody unless it creates positive cash flow on the outside. I said, well, what does that mean? He says, that's the way positive cash flow is the way society tells you if your company is doing, accomplishing the purpose and mission that society allows you to exist for in the first place right so and it's just simple and what he's doing he says by the time we're done in business schools including in hr we forget that if you if you have high supply for something skills competencies mindset culture that is not what's required to meet the requirements of the marketplace that's reflected in cash flow then if you have high levels of supply for those practices structures and processes but they don't exactly align the needs of the customer, then they're irrelevant. If you have high supply and there's low demand, the economic value is zero. And sometimes we forget that in HR, but that has to be the fundamental guiding principle for HR professionals. To always remember that nothing we do on the inside matters unless it ultimately creates an organization that can meet the requirements of the marketplace. Lovely. I, I, I love how you've connected HR to the business directly. You know, I think that's where a lot of companies fail. They do not connect the HR with the business directly. Right. Uh, so, uh, Wayne, coming to uh, the war of talent, the book is subtitled Why the War for Talent is Failing Your Company and What You Can Do About It. Uh, let us first understand the why. Why is the talent war failing the companies around? So why are companies failing in the war for talent? And the reason is, is they're asking the wrong question. Let me explain what that means. They're asking, the question they're asking is how do we, how do we build talent? How do we hire, train, and develop talent? And that is overwhelmingly the wrong question. And the, and the reason it's the wrong question is the focus is on the word talent. Now, let me let me go on the offense a little bit because we have data to back up this what i'm going to say that's going to be a little bit offensive to some people in the last 10 years last 10 maybe 12 years the hr field around the world has fallen in love with the word talent if you go back 10 15 20 years 25 years the word talent was there but it was kind of a side it was it was it was important but it was kind of a side issue in the last 10 years, the HR field has fallen in love with the concept of talent. And, and there's a number of reasons for that, but I'm not gonna go into those, but let me tell you the problem with that. But before we do that, 
you know, companies have created directors of talent. They have upper, they have a vice president. Sometimes a head of HR is called the chief talent officer. So this word talent has permeated the HR field. And that's not, I'm not saying talent isn't important. Right. Yeah. But it has severe limitations that are sometimes overlooked. And that is my colleague and friend, uh, actually the phone just rang and that was him calling, uh, Dave Ulrich uses this metaphor. He says, is it possible to have five world-class players on a basketball team and not have a world-class basketball team? Uh, right. And the answer is, of course. So it's possible to have five individuals five really talented world-class individuals and not have an organization that wins. And the problem is that talent conceptualizes people as individuals, not as organization. Not as groups, not as teams. And there's a number of reasons for that. A number of reasons for that is we've, had, we've been graduating people in, in psychology, you know, for years and years, hundreds and hundreds, and they can't get jobs in psychology because they're, so they go into, into HR, that's the closest thing they come up with. And the unit of analysis that they're trying to work on is individuals. That's what psychology does. It talks about how people think and, think and behave. It's not how organizations think and behave. That's a separate logic flow. Okay, so the problem with talent is it focuses on, on individuals, not on making the whole greater than the sum of the parts. Let me give an example. This is when I teach in our, I've been teaching our senior HR program at the University of Michigan and throughout India in a number of venues uh, for many, many years. And this is an exercise I, I always do. I said, I, I asked the, the, the participants, let's, let's assume there are 40 people in the classroom. I, so, and, and a lot of them have fallen in love with this talent concept. I said, so it's a simple, I'm going to ask you two simple questions. How much time and effort do you spend trying to hire really good, talented people? And they'll say, oh, quite a bit. Then I ask, how good of a job do you do? <laughs> and they'll say, oh, we're okay. We're okay. I say, okay, now all of you clear out the room. You all, leave, you 40 people leave the room and your exact competitor, your exact counterpart, in your most important, most aggressive competitor comes in and sits in your chair. Got it? Now I'm going to ask two questions. Now you're not here in your chair, but your competitor's in your chair. I'm going to ask your competitors, how much time and effort do you spend time to hire really good people? What are they going to say? Oh, we spend a reasonable amount of time trying to hire really good And how good of a job do you do? Oh, we're okay. So who's telling the truth? Are they telling the truth or are you telling the truth? And the point is, you're both telling the truth. Now, that's not saying if you don't, if you let down your focus and hire idiot, or <laughs> hire people who are not capable, then you can create competitive disadvantage. But if you spend a lot of time and effort trying to hire really good people and you do a pretty good job, you're creating competitive parity, not competitive advantage. Because competitive advantage is not the talent you've got. Yeah, but what do you do with that? Competitive advantage is what you do with the talent after you've got it. And that's an organization question. Lovely. There's a professor at UCLA. His, name's, his name is uh, uh, Harold Demsetz. And uh, 
he, he may have recently retired. But he did this research and he pointed out that the competitors in every major, the, the, the competitors in every industry over time will have about the same raw talent. And the way it happens is you hire somebody that's really good, so you fill your slot. Six months later, you know, you've got your slot filled, but now a really good, smart young woman comes on the market who understands the technology and linkage to customers, and she understands all that stuff, but you'd filled your slot. So who gets that person? Your competitor gets that person. So over time, there's, there's a competitive equilibrium in the labor market. Now, you have to have, you have to have talent people. Don't hire stupid people. But if you hire, if you spend a lot of time and effort trying to hire good people and you do a pretty good job, you've created competitive parity, not competitive advantage. Hmm. Lovely. Uh, uh, you, you've, you've actually answered my next question, which I had somehow in my mind was, uh, you know, everyone tries to get the best talent on board, but uh, what is their role in, you know, maintaining them and making a competitive advantage, like you said. So great. What is the responsibility of a business leader in the HR you know, handling talent management? You know, uh, do the employees also have a responsibility towards the HR? Uh, if I were to turn tables around, you know. Oh, uh, th that's that's obviously. I think the answer to that is yes. Leaders play a major role in having responsibility for HR. In fact, one of the questions I always ask in my classes and in the companies I work with. Who has primary responsibility for the human side of the business? And 90, I won't say 99, probably 98% of the time, the answer is leaders. Leaders have primary responsibility for people. And, and then I say, oh, really? So is it possible? And then I ask the question, is it possible to have your leaders, your CEO say, go one direction, and the compensation system says, go a different direction? Could that ever happen? Oh, and they start thinking. Oh, and, and some people, especially in, comp in, 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 the, in the compensation department, say, oh, no, we, we would never do, that would never happen. Yeah. And then, then the line managers in the room will say it happens a lot. And I say, really, how much a lot? Now, I'm not, I'm not because of our time in, in, this, in this podcast, I'm not going to go into that research in detail. Between the research that's done by Gert Hofstadt at Erasmus University in the Netherlands and Ed Lawler, who's a professor at the University of Southern California, you combine their research together, it becomes clear that the overwhelming proportion of compensation dollars, at least in North America, which is the most probably aggressive country in the world at linking pay to performance and the consequences are connected to performance or lack thereof, uh, that's in the United States. And that linkage is extremely weak. That is over 90% of the compensation dollars in North America are not linked directly to performance. Okay. So, so the point is, I mean, we, we, we pay people for age, for gender, for, um, for tenure, for whether union, non-union, for what their last, if their last name is the last name of the, the founder of the company. So there's lots of, we pay people for just showing up <laughs> and not really good. So there's lots of reasons why we pay people that are not linked to performance. So the CEO can say all day long, I want profitability, market share, 
uh, repeat business. I want all that stuff, but we're paying people for all this other stuff. So what are people going to do? They're going to do whatever they want to do because it, there's no linkage. So the so leaders need to understand. Now, if you amplify that by saying leaders say go one direction, but we hire people to go a different direction. Recruitment, we call that. We we promote people, succession planning, we measure, performance manager, we pay people, remuneration, we train people, training and development to go a different direction. What direction is the organization going to go? Through the people we hire, train, develop, measure, reward. HR, again, tends to grossly underestimate its own importance. So then the question is, if, 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 if all of those practices are not consistent with the requirements of the marketplace, as seen by leaders, then 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 if you get leaders, then you have a problem. If you have leaders going one direction and the collective HR practice is going another direction, the good news is we know the answer. Who will win? <laughs> yeah. And who will win is the competition. Right. It's not leaders won't win. It's not HR. They'll 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 both lose. So the research we've done over years at the University of Michigan says that leaders and HR folks need to be exactly linked together. And that linkage is critical for competitive advantage. In fact, the research that was done, I think it was done by Deloitte a few years ago, said, took the, the personality profiles, the competency profiles of CEOs and compared them to the competency profiles of different functionaries, finance, marketing, accounting, operations, manufacturing, and so forth. And, um, and the competency profile of HR, of the senior HR executives, most closely mirrors the competency profile of the CEO. Now, that linkage obviously has to happen. And, and so HR, leaders do have uh, responsibility for HR, but their primary responsibility for HR is to get HR to be linked to the right issues by focusing on the marketplace. And one final issue, research that was done at Stanford here recently by Chuck O'Reilly, a brilliant, brilliant uh, professor there and colleague, showed that leaders have direct influence on performance. All right? There is that linkage. But when leaders focus on creating the competitive culture that then impacts performance, that leaders magnify their impact on performance many fold over because of the culture they've created throughout the entire organization. Oh, okay. This is, this is great. While I'm surprised at what you have revealed to us, uh, I'm also very certain and sure after this discussion that, you know, HR is definitely the guiding lights, one of the most important departments in any organization. And I'm also surprised at the fact, you know, that startups for that matter, give HR the last importance. They hire the HRs at the last, you know, when, when, when people start up an organization. Uh, but interesting how HR is so important. One last question before we move to the next section, Wayne. How do you, how do you see the HR evolve from here? Uh, obviously, the pandemic will have a greater role in that. And you did mention that in the beginning of the discussion. But how do you foresee HR developing from here? As we've talked about, during the pandemic, there's been a short-term mandate for HR folks to keep people healthy and give them the basic tools to be able to collaborate. Now, during this time of great turbulence, great change, of great uncertainty, 
a lot of companies have learned how to cope with the current situation. It hasn't been pleasant, but, mo but most companies have learned how to get, keep people healthy and give them the basic training. So, so that has, but, but that's been a steep learning curve for everyone. Now, there's no surprise here. Something like this is gonna happen again. It might be a 2008 economic meltdown. It might be a new pandemic. It might, it, it, it might, I don't, heaven forbid, it, it might be hostile action across nations. There's lots of things that can create enormous disruptions. I've seen, of the companies I've worked with and been exposed to in the last few months, I've seen some of them have made a, dis, a very disciplined and rigorous effort to document what they've learned through this, through uh, about navigating through this kind of uncertainty. I've seen other companies just say, oh, oh, I'm so glad when this is over, we'll go back to business as usual. Uh, right, yeah. So one of the things I think that HR professionals will have to do who will be successful in creating sustainable performance for their companies is they will need to dock, they will need to, to learn what they have learned about how to manage the human side of the business under these enormous periods of uncertainty. So that not if it occurs again, but when it occurs again, that they can, they can move ahead of their competition and resolve and, uh, and address the issues of uncertainty more quickly again than their competitor. Right. So that's one important issue. The second issue is, comes back to the basics. What we know is HR professionals have three categories of knowledge. They have to know stuff about HR. They need to know stuff about internal operations, finance, accounting, operations, supply chain management, order fulfillment cycles, that kind of stuff. But they, uh, they could also have knowledge about customers, competitors, capital markets, global financial instruments, so forth. Now, those are three categories of knowledge. What we know at the University of Michigan, we have the largest database in the world on HR professionals including, we have over 120,000 people in our database, including what we think is the largest database in India of HR professionals. We've partnered with NHRD for, for, for almost two decades now in doing this research, um, along with, with many other call, uh, uh, international associations around the world. And these, these, one of the things we know from this research, those three knowledge categories, HR, from those three knowledge categories, HR professionals are pretty good about having knowledge of HR. They're kind of medium, the kind of medium at having knowledge about internal operations and their knowledge about customers, competitors, stuff that's going on, on the outside that is critical for success. They, they're very deficient in, the, in that category of knowledge. Then if you take the data set and line up these thousands of companies by high performance to low performance, and you ask, how, so HR professionals have high knowledge about HR, but how much does that differentiate the knowledge of the high performers from the low performers? And the answer is zero. HR professionals in the high performing firms have about the same knowledge level about HR practices as their counterparts in low performing firms. Then you ask, so how much does knowledge of internal operations differentiate performance? Yeah. And the answer is medium. And how much does knowledge, HR professionals have low knowledge or media, extremely mediocre, low knowledge about 
external issues, but how much does that differentiate HR professionals, high-performing firms and low-performing firms? And the answer is high. So we come back to where we started a few minutes ago. HR professionals need to understand what's going on in the external reality of their business. And everything they do needs to be designed and delivered to help al to align their, their organizations, their people across all departments, across all levels, to be consistent with the requirements of the external world. Because if they don't do that, nothing else they're going to do matters. Wonderful. Okay, so that's the... Go, go back to basics, yeah? <laughs> go back. Go, go, but the, the basics that we don't, we're not doing very well. That's, that, that's the point. Yeah, right. Yeah. So the basics are not very basically understood, probably. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. That's fine. Right, Wayne. So we, we go to the next section uh, quickly. And this is the last and very interesting section uh, common across all the episodes that I've done on the, on the podcast. I ask you one secret about the book, which you probably have not really shared. Uh, until today about the about the book or about the the four authors that uh, you know were there on the on the writing uh, team what would you like to share with us um that book focuses on the empirical findings that said that hr professionals need to focus on creating value for customers and shareholders i had a a, a friend few days ago shared a thought with me actually it wasn't it really was a few days it was last sunday shared a thought with me and he said i challenge you to give grace to others i said well that's kind of a strange and then i got thinking about it and and the more i thought about it the more that is absolutely right grace means to to um to give people undeserved attention to give people something they don't deserve. And, and I think there's several ways in which we provide grace. We provide grace by helping others to grow. You know, when we're, when we're children, we don't deserve anything our parents give to us. We haven't earned anything, right? And there are other people in, that we interact with regularly that may need help to grow and develop so they can provide for their families, their communities, and so forth. So we need to be able to give people things that they don't deserve. I ask every class I teach, how many of you have had some degree of luck in your careers? All the hands go up. So you've been, you've been given something you didn't deserve. That's called luck. It's also called grace. Nice. Okay. Another part of grace is, is to help pass on your core principles and values to people that may not have them or who are who are wandering without a set of values in the world and i think hr's positioned uniquely to do that finally in 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 israel at the bottom of the of the sea of galilee and the river jordan there's a there's a sea that's called the dead sea yeah and they call it the dead sea because nothing can live in it uh, there's our few brine shrimp that live at the bottom, but it's essentially dead. And the reason is all the water flows out of these beautiful mountain streams down into this down into this sea. And the reason it's dead is it nothing flows through it. Things flow into it, but they don't flow out of it. 
the Dead Sea is dead because it takes, it doesn't give. Okay. Wonderful. That's that's beautiful. Now, one metaphor I heard for this recently is um, one day a man wakes up, or and he's a frog. Okay, he's a frog. This man's a frog, and and he's and he's sitting on the top of a fence post. He wakes up, he looks around, and two thoughts come to his mind. One is I don't know how I got, I know I didn't get here by myself. <laughs> okay. And second, now that I'm here, what do I do? <laughs> right. Okay. So one thing, you know, I, I one thing as you indicated in my introduction, although let me ask why, if this were being, if, if the pandemic weren't in place, we would be doing this in person. And if we were doing this in person, this would be my hundred and thirtieth, my hundred and fortieth trip to India. Wow! So I spent a lot of time in India. In fact, there's a stamp on your name as well, is what I understand. Yes, that's true. The the Indian government, yeah, yeah. And this is one thing I haven't shared with my beloved colleagues throughout India, and that is how I got up on the top of my of this fence post in my career, which, I, which I'm so grateful and blessed to have been having this wonderful association with India and many of the leading companies in India over my career is who put me there was was my beloved wife Nancy she critiques she she's my thought leader she helps me to see more things more clearly and she's the one that says to me now that you're here what are you going to do and 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 the way she frames it, it's time for you've you've been the recipient of many blessings from having your association with India. Now it's time for you to give back. And I've tried to do that, especially during this pandemic season in India, with with many many webinars and podcasts. And so I'm, uh, Subram, I'm so grateful that you've invited me to do this because this is one opportunity for me to give back it's an honor for us Wayne and I think uh, a big thanks to Nancy because I think uh, while she's your wife she's also your personal HR if I may say so <laughs> she's she's bringing out the best of you I guess that's right lovely thank you so much Wayne for this wonderful discussion there's a lot of learning and uh, a lot of grace from your side uh, for all of our listeners thank you so much for making time for this podcast and I hope you enjoyed the discussion as well. Thanks so much for having me. Good luck and Godspeed to you and all of your colleagues. Thank you so much, Wayne. Bye-bye.